The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Please turn uh, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I'd like to read a few verses from this chapter, just a few verses beginning in verse 21 of Romans 3, and then we'll pray again. I ask the Lord's blessing on his word and on the remainder of our time together. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 and going through verse 26 of that same chapter. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we have been so powerfully reminded of the friendship of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way in which you lead us like a shepherd, the way in which you teach us and care for us and comfort us through one another. We pray that we would be open to being used by you in the lives of others and that we would be grateful and mindful of the ways in which you have been at work in our own lives. Father, these are inestimable blessings that we have as your children. We can come to you, and even though we don't know how to pray as we ought, your spirit intercedes with groanings that words can't express. We thank you that in our time of need, we can approach you boldly and come to you as the one who is on the throne of grace, who loves to give grace to us to help us in our time of need. We thank you that when we need wisdom, you promise to give wisdom to all without finding fault if we ask. We thank you that you know what we need before we even ask, and that you as our good, kind, wise Heavenly Father will surely give to us exactly what we need. Father, it is a great privilege to be called your children. It is also a great privilege to have your word. We thank you that you've given us not only comfort, but instruction and teaching in your word. We thank you that in your word we have a revelation of your Son, our Savior, and of the meaning and significance of his death on our behalf. Father, as we enter this special week of celebration, mindful of your blessings to us, 
May we keep our eyes fixed on the cross and on the empty tomb. And Lord, as we look to our Savior, may we be changed. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. You've probably noticed, if you've read the Bible and read through many different texts of Scripture, that there are certain passages of the Bible and certain aspects of biblical revelation where certain aspects of God, certain attributes of God, are are highlighted. If you read the book of Leviticus, for instance, you'll see repeated over and over and over again this phrase that goes something like this, Be holy because... The Lord your God is holy. The holiness of God is just infused throughout the book of Leviticus. It's it's really on every page of the book of Leviticus. Everything that is given, all the laws and instructions in that book seem aimed at, at one reality, which is the holiness of God. Or if you look in the New Testament, if you look at a book like 1 John, that little letter that we have In the New Testament, uh, you'll see this idea of God's love, this attribute, this perfection of God, that God is love. He says, by this we know that we're children of God if we love one another because God is love. And so you see different aspects of the scripture, different parts of the scripture highlight different attributes of God. And, And if you were to ask the Apostle Paul... What attribute of God, what what reality of who God is, is most fully on display at the cross of Jesus Christ, which we are particularly focused on this week? He He would, I think, come up with one word, and it's really the word that he gives us in verse 21. He says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Actually, if you look back at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul says that this is one of the things that makes him unashamed of the gospel. He starts in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he gives two reasons. He says, first, because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In other words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it saves people. And then secondly, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so this week, perhaps as much as anything we might focus on, I think Paul and this text would have us focus on the way in which the cross of Jesus Christ is a manifestation, in fact, Paul would say is the preeminent manifestation of the righteousness of our God. So the question that he seeks to answer in this paragraph, and it's a glorious paragraph that contains some of the most profound words in the scripture, but the question he seeks to answer ultimately in this paragraph is this, how is it that the righteousness of God is on display at the cross of Jesus Christ? And here's what he says, beginning in verse 22, he says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. Now, this is, a, this is really a remarkable statement. If you were to survey the Old Testament and you were to try to track down all the places where the righteousness of God is mentioned, 
you'd find a lot of different passages, a number of texts where this term righteousness is associated with God. But really, you could divide almost all of those texts in the Old Testament into two different categories. Whenever God's righteousness is brought up in the Old Testament, it usually has to do with one of two things. First, it often has to do with God's justice. God is a righteous God, the Old Testament tells us, and what that means is God is just. God God judges fairly. He will always bring about justice. He's always on the side of justice. That's what it means to say that God is a righteous God. The psalmist puts this very concisely in Psalm 9. He says, he rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. In other words, to speak about God's righteousness in the Old Testament is to speak about God's justice, his his judging with equity, the psalmist says. That's one category that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, The second category we see in the Old Testament is a little harder to pin down, but I think we can we can get a decent idea about it by looking at a couple of different passages. I want to really focus on one because the second aspect is this. When, when the Old Testament writers talk about God's righteousness, sometimes they mean God's justice, but oftentimes what they refer to is God's deliverance of his people, God's salvation, his work to save his people in keeping with his promises. I'll give you another verse from the Psalms that reinforces this aspect of righteousness. This is from Psalm 31. The psalmist says this, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. So if you look at the Old Testament, when people talk about the righteousness of God, they generally mean either God is a just God, he judges fairly, or they mean God is a God who saves his people, who rescues his people, he's a God of deliverance, he's a rock of refuge. Paul says that both of those things... Both of those aspects of God's righteousness are on clear display at the cross of Jesus Christ in a way that is even clearer and more profound than anything we see in the Old Testament. That's what he means when he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And then in verse 22, this righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. That's actually the really remarkable turn in this paragraph. There there are so many sentences in this paragraph that that stand out, so many that we're familiar with. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Very very important sentence for us to know and commit to memory. But, But this may be the most astonishing turn in the whole paragraph because what Paul says is not only is God's righteousness on display in the gospel, Not only is God's righteousness in full display at the cross of Jesus, but God's righteousness is given to those who believe in Jesus. This is just just mind-blowing, really. Uh, In the fall, we talked a little bit about Martin Luther. There was an important anniversary related to Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses. But I can't help but think of Luther when I come to a passage like this, because one of the things you find out when you study the biography of Martin Luther is that he knew about God's righteousness. 
And he said that the more he understood, the more he thought about God's righteousness, the more he meditated on it and reflected upon it, the more he actually hated God. Look at what Luther says. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly I was angry with God. Why was that? Because Luther looked at God's justice which is certainly something contained in his righteousness. And Luther looked at the way God saves people, and Luther said, I can't possibly measure up to that righteousness of God. But then Luther read this text, and he said, Then I began to understand the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God. In other words, he began to see that the righteousness of God was not something that creates this great distance between us and God, but something that God gives to those who come to Christ in faith. He gives it to them, he says, as Paul says, to all who believe. Now, now this isn't a lowering of God's standard. Paul makes that very clear in verse 23. Paul says, all of us have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting if you track the word, the various words used for sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you find there are just a tremendous number of different words, different ways that people can count this kind of thing. But I, I, the way I would count it, there are at least seven different words for sin in the Old Testament, and probably about twelve or thirteen words for sin in the New Testament. In other words, in other words, it, it has many different dimensions to it. There are many different manifestations of sin. It's a part of our lives that 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 shows itself in all kinds of ways. The word that Paul uses for sin here is a very common New Testament word. It's a word that means to miss the mark of something. And it's an appropriate word for this context because what Paul is making very clear is that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone has missed the mark, fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, the reason why God's righteousness is good news to us is not because we're more righteous than we thought we were. Actually, God's righteousness is good news to us in the midst of the fact that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. But the reason why it's good news, the reason why it's a righteousness given to us, is because of three words that Paul uses in verses 24 and 25. The way in which righteousness moves from being bad news like it was to Luther, or news that we think we can live up to, which verse 23 cuts out, is because of what verses 24 and 25 tell us about God. Here's what God has done for us. All are sinners, but he says... Those who come in faith to Jesus Christ are justified. And then he gives these three terms. How is it that we're justified? He says we're justified first, freely by his grace. If all of us are sinners, if none of us measures up to the glorious standard of our righteous God, then Paul says the only way 
that God's righteousness to be, could be given to us is if he gave it to us freely by his grace. No other way. Any other, any other religious system, any other uh, self-help approach to your life that tells you that there are things you can do to earn God's good graces, uh, things you can do to uh, somehow measure up to God's standard, ways that you can improve yourself so that God will find you more acceptable than he might find someone else. Any other system that suggests that goes directly against what Paul says here. Paul says, all of this is something that is a freely given gift. It's unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We couldn't do anything to deserve it. It's freely by his grace. He says it's also through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the second concept that he gives us, not just free grace, but also redemption. Redemption is a word in Greek that's used for buying back something. It's often used in in contemporary sources to the New Testament for buying someone out of slavery, rescuing them, purchasing them from their slavery. And that, I think, is exactly what Paul means because the Bible is very clear that by nature, not only do we not measure up to God's standard, but the Bible tells us we are enslaved to sin. The Bible also tells us we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, just kind of the way the world works, the treadmill that you get on in life that sort of forces you into certain decisions. We were enslaved to that, the Bible says. It talks about our slavery to Satan, our slavery to ourselves. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's entirely possible, I think entirely likely, that you may be here and you may be, some of you may be enslaved still. You may not know of this free grace that God provides in Jesus Christ. You might feel like you're in bondage to the elementary things of the world, to the way the world works. Or you might feel like you're totally in bondage to your own sin, to forces outside your control. But no, the gospel is redemption by his grace. There's another concept in here, and it's perhaps the most glorious of all. It's in verse 25. My translation renders it perhaps a little differently than yours. Yours may say this, God presented him, Christ, as a propitiation. And that's an outstanding word, because what that word means is an appeasement of wrath. Uh, my, my translation says sacrifice of atonement, which, which can be a little ambiguous. It doesn't quite get at that appeasement idea. But really, the term that Paul uses here is a very specific term that's used in the Old Testament. It's used one other place in the New Testament, but it's used in the Old Testament uh, translation of, of the Scriptures into Greek, and it's used for a very specific place. It's used not for a concept, but for an actual uh, physical place. And it's used for the place which we call the mercy seat, that, that top of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies that the priest would visit one time per year. Imagine that, once a year, just once a year, the priest gets to go in, the high priest, to the Holy of Holies, and he has to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 tells us about this. It tells us how he has to first go in and sprinkle blood for himself. And then he comes in 
And at this moment of high drama, one time a year, walks into the Holy of Holies and takes this blood, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And Leviticus 16 tells us he sprinkles it on the atonement cover and in front of it, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. And what Paul says here is, when you see the cross of Jesus Christ, you are seeing the once and final sacrifice of atonement. That day of atonement simply pointed us forward to this moment where Jesus took upon himself our sins, the penalty we deserved, and because of this appeased the wrath of God. Therefore, we are offered free grace. We are given redemption. And it's all grounded on that sacrifice of atonement. Whatever else you think of this week, whatever else you focus on when it comes to the cross and the resurrection, whatever other emotions flood into your mind, you might think about God's love displayed for you, and it is a display of God's love. You might think about God's kindness and God's mercy. You know, it's, it's all those things. But Paul, Paul says, don't you see God's righteousness on display as his justice is fully satisfied? That's actually what he returns to. After meditating on what this means for us, he then turns our attention back at the end of the paragraph to what this tells us about God. Remember, that was the whole point of the paragraph. The whole point of the paragraph was that this this cross shows us the righteousness of God. And so that's what he returns to. He says, this sacrifice of atonement is to be received by faith, but he did it, verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness. It says in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness. How does free grace, redemption, and that atoning sacrifice demonstrate the righteousness of God? Well, Paul says, here's how it does it. It shows God to be both just and at the same time, without violating his justice, even a little bit, lowering the standard even a little bit, he also justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So you look at the Old Testament and you look at this concept of righteousness and you see justice there. And it emphasizes the distance between yourself and God. And then you also see God's deliverance and That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful truth that the Psalms and Isaiah meditate on quite a bit with respect to God's righteousness. But but it's sort of hard to square those two. How can God both be fully just and deliver and save his people according to his promises? And Paul says, don't you see? We We knew that God did that from the Old Testament, but we didn't see how he did it. Now we see how he does it. Because on the cross, God's justice is satisfied. And on the cross, God brings about deliverance for his people. You come and you trust in what Christ has done alone. What does the hymn say? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And then another hymn writer puts it this way. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. 
Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. That's the gospel. That's what we talk about this week. That's, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to give his life. This is what we reflect on, and in a sense, as we move through the week, we're getting closer and closer to fixing our gaze on that sacrifice of atonement, that, that work of free grace, that, that redemption that is only possible because our righteous God showed forth his righteousness and offers his righteousness through the sacrifice of his son. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word once again. Its riches are inexhaustible. Father, we pray that this week, of all weeks, you might fix our gaze on your righteousness, and your righteousness particularly as it's made manifest on the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, may this be our meditation. May this be our song. May this be the source of our rejoicing and our comfort and our hope. And we ask it in the name of our risen Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.